Would you take a copy of God's Word this morning? And we're going to turn open to the book of Hebrews. If you're using a pew Bible there, you can turn right to page 1003 of the pew Bible. This morning, Hebrews chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 10 this morning. Hebrews chapter 5. And before we open the word together this morning, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing. Our Father, we are thankful that you are a God who speaks, and that you speak in a way that we can understand. So we pray this morning. And as we hear this word read, as we hear it preached, we would know that it is an act of magnanimous grace on your part. Speak to us, people who are desperately in need of a word outside of ourselves, who need an authoritative word, a word that is true. And we pray that as we hear it read and preached, that we would know that we have heard truth this morning, but even more so that we have heard the God of all truth. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We'll return back to uh, the book of Hebrews uh, after a month-plus break uh, here this morning, and I'm delighted uh, to do so. I'm delighted for a number of reasons, uh, but none more so than the fact that it is what the writer of Hebrews is continually pointing us to that uh, you and I need together. Um, I was up very early this morning, and I was praying uh, for a number of you and different things that Uh, you are going through and uh, wrestling through. And uh, the thought that was going through my mind uh, early this morning was just how hard it is uh, to live in this world, just the different trials and uh, different sufferings that we have to endure in this world. And then my mind immediately ran to 
it's not only hard to dwell in this world, it's hard to dwell in faith in this world. Continue to abide in faith. You know, we often use the illustration, and I don't think it's overused because I think it's reality, is that often it feels like all the trials and the sufferings and the pains and the sins of this world are like waters that are seeking to flood yours and my faith and to sink it, much like those disciples that were in the boat with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee and feel like all of the the waves are crashing upon them and they are going to sink. And you'll remember what they cried out to them when Peter cried out to Jesus asleep in the boat. Often that's what goes through our heads, I think. He said, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? And you have that thought. But when you do what the writer of Hebrews has us do here, when the high waters are there, he points out the very thing that you and I need, that when we look to Christ, we find that, ah, not only are ahead brought above the waters, but we're able to walk upon the waters and walk through the waters. So I want to look at this morning, want to look what he focuses our eyes on, on Jesus. Christology, we could call it. Uh, It's a big word, big theological word. All it means is the doctrine of Christ and doctrine matters, as the writer of Hebrews is pointing out to us here. None of us have thought enough about Christ. None of us have thought deep enough about Christ. And so what he is doing in the midst of their circumstances and their trials is he is once again pointing them back to Christ. He's seeking to fill them. To fill them with knowledge of who Christ is. And what Christ has done. And who Christ forever shall be. He's putting doctrine before them. And it matters. As we'll see this morning. Let's remind ourselves a little bit before we begin here. uh, The beginning of chapter 5. There the writer of Hebrews has been considering the high priests in Israel. In particular, he's been considering Aaron, the first high priest for the nation of Israel. And what he has said is, is that Aaron was able to sympathize with those that he was ministering to because Aaron himself was someone that had been tried. He had gone through trials and sufferings. He was in the flesh. And so he is saying this is one of the things that made the high priest of Israel a sympathetic high priest. And what he is doing now in chapter 5 is he's taking this argument, an argument that's often used in Scripture, called an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's arguing if this was true of Aaron, the lesser, if he's able to sympathize with our weakness because he has been through trial and been through suffering, how much greater... Is this true of the Lord Jesus Christ? So we're going to look at this this morning in three points. First, that Christ knew anguish in prayer. That's verse 7. Christ knew anguish in prayer. Second, that Christ was obedient through suffering. That's verses 8 and then the first half of 9, 9a. And that leads to our hope. The last point, Christ is the source of salvation, 9b. So 
Christ knew anguish and prayer. Christ was obedient through suffering. And then our hope, Christ is the source of salvation. First, Christ knew anguish and prayer. I was on a flight yesterday, a couple of different flights. I'd been in meetings for a few days and, uh, you know, that kind of meeting wariness. And so on the last flight, I decided I'm just going to relax by watching a movie. And so I was watching a movie on that last flight uh, back home yesterday. And in that movie, there was a character who was being swamped by different trials and different sufferings. And all of a sudden, that character said, I would pray if I'd ever been taught how to pray. I thought, isn't that interesting? There, there's no doubt that we learn to pray often when we're in trials, when we're in sufferings. Suffering is the great school of learning to pray. But there's a natural inclination, as that woman was expressing in the movie. There's an actual, an actual inclination for you and I to be people of prayer. Even those who don't believe when difficult trials arise, they pray. It's much like someone that is adrift on the ocean and they are bobbing in the waves and their head is sinking below the surface. When they can get their head above the surface, what is it that they do? They, they, they cry out and they say, someone help me. And that's often what happens with, with prayer. We learn to pray, but there's also a natural inclination to pray in the midst of trials. It's natural, and yet what's interesting is that Jesus was always a man of prayer. And he was always a man of prayer because he was always a man in trial. You and I have moments of trial. His entire life was one living, breathing trial. Constant sufferings. Constant wrestling. He never had rest, none, not a moment of relief. When he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He doesn't know rest like that. He said he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. And it's instructive that a man under such great trial was a man of prayer. The writer says he offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. When? Well, surely Jesus was a man of prayer his entire life. He offers prayers and supplications his entire life. We know that he did so with tears. We saw it when he was over the city of Jerusalem. He prays for it and he weeps over it. He prays and weeps at the tomb of Lazarus. We read in Psalm 22 that great messianic prophecy of his, quote, groaning in prayer. We know, Mark tells us, that he rose early in the morning, and he rose early in the morning to pray. But most likely, what the writer of Hebrews is speaking of is where yours and my minds run. is no doubt where his mind ran. That in that tsunami of anguish, in that great moment of prayer, that 
When our Lord Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane, he offered prayers and supplications with tears. Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. Immediately prior to his rest, he goes in there for one purpose, and that is to pray. His whole life is trial upon trial, but the greatest trial was right before him. He could see it just over the horizon. He knew the very next day that he would be arrested and tried, and at the end of that trial that he would be placed upon a cross, and he would bear the full wrath of his father, and he would die. And so he takes his closest companions with him. He needs them. He takes John and James and Peter with him into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, just be watchful and pray with me. And in the garden there, we're told, Mark tells us, he took Peter and James and John and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death and he cries out to God the Father Abba Father all things are possible for you remove this cup from me yet not what I will but what thou will Luke the physician and it's important that he's a physician in his gospel will write that when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he is crying out in prayer and this anguish of prayer that he began being in agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground unbelievable suffering and anguish and all of this because he is anticipating being under his father's wrath and dying as one commentator said it is the dread of utter ruin and so he makes these loud cries in prayer as the writer says quote to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence Now, there are multiple places in this passage that you should have all kinds of warning bells going off in your head. There should be sirens where you go, that doesn't sound quite right, writer of Hebrews. And this is one of those places right here. You remember that what Jesus is praying and what he is asking is that this cup be removed from him. The cup of the Father's wrath. He didn't want to drink this cup of wrath. And he didn't want to to die and be under the power of death. And he's crying out. The son in his incarnation and his birth into this world. uh, Paul will say in Philippians 2 that he emptied himself in the incarnation. When he became flesh he emptied himself. It's what we call the great kenosis passage in scripture. It is not that he emptied himself of deity. He continues to be truly divine. He is God in the flesh. 
and his glory, though it is shrouded, it is also true that in his incarnation, his, his glory is revealed. It's very clear that he is divine. His glory is revealed. John will say as much in John 1.14. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He, he was truly divine. And John, no doubt, is speaking about that moment of the transfiguration where he sees that Jesus is truly divine in all of his glory. But it's also true that he is truly man. He's truly God and he is truly man. And as the true God-man in the Garden of Gethsemane, you and I get a true picture that He is truly man. For if He didn't want to drink this cup, you and I could doubt that He's truly man. That He's truly man. So He doesn't want to drink this cup. He is in anguish. His emotions as a man are racked. His mind was occupied. His heart was troubled. His will was moved to fear. He does not want to face the wrath of his father. But even more than not wanting to face the wrath of his father. He wants to glorify the father. That's quite a statement. And it's true. Even more than not wanting to face the wrath of his father, he wants to glorify his father. Not my will, but thy will be done, he prays. The son, out of reverence for the father, will glorify the father by willingly drinking this cup in faith. But we're still told in verse 7, aren't we? He made these prayers to him who was able to save from death. And he was heard. He was heard because of his reverence. Didn't he drink this cup? Yes. And how was he heard? An old commentator, Abir Bruce, said it this way. He said, the point to be emphasized is not so much that the prayer of Jesus was heard as that it needed to be heard, that he needed heavenly aid to drink the appointed cup. And I think that's partly right. The Son, in his humanity, As the God-man is crying out to the Father, he does not want to drink this cup. And the Father hears that prayer. And as an act of great mercy on his part, because of the Son's reverence, he gives him strength by the power of the Spirit to continue to abide in faith and to drink the cup. He was heard. His prayer was answered. He stands firm in faith unto death. We often think that the Father only hears us when we are brought out from. Fill in the blank. 
But often the greatest sign of being heard is that he strengthens us when we are in fill in the blank. Not kept us from, but kept us while we are in that trial. And he hears his son. He keeps him. But I think it's even more than that. The writer says to him who was able to save him from death. And the preposition that is used there is actually a preposition that means out of. Now, you can make a mess out of trying to interpret the Bible and putting too much emphasis upon prepositions. But he could have used another preposition here. And it seems the writer is pointing out that Jesus was saved out of death. Now, he experienced it. Didn't he? He experienced death. But you see, he was delivered out from it. He was resurrected even as you sung already this morning in that creed as we sang it together. His prayer was answered in the only way it could be answered to give God the most glory and to work our salvation. He was saved out of it. This is very instructive. Every, every trial ends for those who have turned to God in faith. He always delivers us out of it. It may not be in the moment that we want or what we expect. But for the person of faith, God their Father always delivers you from every trial, every pain, every suffering, every destruction. He always delivers from it. Told earlier... In Hebrews, that Jesus sympathizes with his people because he was made like them in every respect. The writer's trying to press that home to you and I. Here at the very beginning, in the days of his flesh, even the Son and his humanity did not have his prayers answered as he desired. As our high priest, he knows what it is like to have prayers answered differently. He desired not to drink this cup, He experienced the same temptation to abandon faith in his father. He endured pain. He endured disappointment and trial. And yet he remained obedient. Remember that the recipients of this letter, they're being tempted. They're being faced with trials and with different tribulations. And they think maybe it's just not worth the cost to continue to trust in God. And they're tempted to turn back to Judaism. To go back to Moses. To go back to the law. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Oh no, 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 no. Christ is your example. Christ continued to place his faith and his trust in his father. He's your example. But it's even better than that. He's not just your example. He's experienced it even as you've experienced it. And he is your high priest. And he is your help. He 
sympathizes. He's your help. Second, Christ was obedient through suffering. Verse 8, although he was a son, or I think the the better way of thinking about this phrase is son though he was. That is, the son of God though he was, he learned obedience, we're told. Or he was made perfect, as the writer goes on to say in verse 9. Again, warning bells should be going off in your head. What kind of theologian is this writer of Hebrews? Doesn't he know basic Christology? Idea is not that Jesus was somehow imperfect before suffering in this way, that he was disobedient, he was never imperfect, an imperfect Savior could not save you and I. The scriptures are abundantly clear over and over again that the perfect Son of God is Jesus, and he is the perfect Son of Man. He was without sin. The Son of God never needed to learn obedience because he was somehow disobedient. As he said, I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And he never strayed from doing the will of his Father. He was always obedient. You and I, we are disobedient sometimes as children of our Heavenly Father. So sometimes, this is not always the case. This isn't true of all of your sufferings, but sometimes He brings sufferings into our lives so that He can chasten us, so that He can refine us. It's fatherly discipline and fatherly care to refine us. Fathers can use that this weekend. Your children are acting up. You can say, I'm just refining you. But Jesus needed no such refining. He was never disobedient. Even Pilate, his enemy, will declare at Jesus' trial, I find no guilt in him. Remember the centurion standing at the foot of the cross will say of him, certainly this man was innocent. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that he knew no sin. He was obedient, as Paul will say, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does the writer mean that he learned obedience? What does it mean that he was made perfect? You remember Jesus in Matthew 3, his baptism, and he will go out to John the Baptist at the river of Jordan. And you remember that John the Baptist will see him from the distance. and He will call him the, the Holy One. This is the Lamb of God without blemish. And yet what John is doing is he's doing a baptism of repentance. And so when Jesus comes to him and he says, John, baptize me, John begins an argument and says, oh, no, 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 no. I shouldn't be baptizing you. You shouldn't partake of this baptism of repentance. If anyone needs to be baptized for another, I should be baptized by you, Jesus. You remember what Jesus says to him in response. He would say, he says, it is fitting. It's fitting to fill all righteousness. 
That is what he is doing in his baptism as he is going under the waters of baptism at the hands of John. Is he is identifying with all of the sinners as they are being baptized by John. He's identifying himself with us. And so in a very similar way that the Son of God, though he was, learned obedience in the sense that he identified with us in his suffering. He learned it, as our passage says, because he has lived it. Some of you later today, you, you'll, you'll watch football. Uh, and my daughter was saying to me last night, uh, she said, uh, Dad, can I sit with you and you just teach me about football? Show me what it is. Tell me, tell me the rules. I can teach her. She can come to know football this afternoon. But I know football. I played it. I played it. I, uh, I did the three days. Uh, I have arthritis and two ankles from broken ankles to prove it. I have arthritis in my neck from having my head turned around 18 times. Hey, I dealt it as well. Uh, maybe not as much, but I know it. I've experienced it. Some of you have been to Paris. You, you, you know Paris because you've walked it. He learned obedience because he lived it. As perfect though he already was, he, he showed himself. He was made perfect, a, a perfect Savior by demonstrating obedience until his very dying breath. He remained faithful unto the end. He continued to be peaceable. He continued to be joy-filled. He continued to be meek and mild. He continued to be strong in faith. Even to the point of death, death on a cross. Christ was obedient through suffering. And that leads to our hope. Christ is the source of salvation. He's the source of salvation. See, he's so concerned, the writer of Hebrews, that these people that have claimed Christ, they're now looking to turn away from Christ as if there is some substitute they can find. We all need saving. And he's saying, here's the source. Because of what we just went through, he alone was obedient through suffering. Where Adam failed in the garden, Christ rises to the challenge in the garden. He's faithful to the very end, despite all the sufferings. And he knows the anguish of this world. He is a merciful and sympathetic high priest to you, Hebrew Christian. He is the only hope for salvation that you have. 
This is a high priest worth trusting in and turning to again and again and again. He, again, he's pointing out the contrast between Aaron and Jesus, the Arianic priesthood, and Jesus. He is after the order of Melchizedek, which we'll take back up when we get to chapter 7 of this book. But the Arianic priesthood was not perfect. An Arianic priest had to offer sacrifice for his own sins before he could offer sacrifice for the sins of the people that he represented. But Christ has no such need. One commentator said it well, for him to have been our fellow in defeat would have been of no worth to us. Jesus was not corrupted by sin. He conquers sin. He wasn't stained by sin, and so he is able to save from sin. He was never defeated by sin, and so he can deliver us from sin. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, you can't turn away from him. He's the source, the source of salvation. I hope you know this. I hope you know verse 9 and you truly believe it. He's the source of salvation to all who obey Him. There's no other source. There's so much goofiness you hear out in the world. People say, ah, all religions are the same. No, they are not. Jesus Christ taught the same thing that Allah taught, that Joseph taught, that Buddha taught. No, he did not. There are many ways to God. Many paths to get there. No, there are not. He is the source of salvation. I'll grant there are other salvations. I'll grant you that. You can be saved from cancer by radiation treatments. You can be saved from trauma by wearing a seatbelt. You can be saved from poverty by governmental programs. I'll grant you that. I'll even grant you that different religions can save you in different ways. Are people that have their entire lives where they're turned around. They were drunkards or they were adulterers or they were fornicators or they were drug addicts or they were gamblers. And Mormonism or Islam or Buddhism turns their lives around. I'll grant you that. But there's a key difference. The adjective is all important in this text. Those may be salvations, but what they provide, if they provide anything, they provide temporarily. We stand as condemned sinners before a holy God who is going to enter into judgment upon everyone. Every single one of us in this room are born to this world, a traitor and a sinner to this holy God. There's only one source of, and here's the adjective. Did you catch it? Eternal 
salvation. There's only one source of eternal salvation. Oh, what a gift he has given us. What a gift, his own son. So that you might forever be with him. You don't deserve it. And he gives you his son. The son didn't want to experience the wrath of his father. But he is willing in reverence to his father. And out of love for your soul. Gift you have been given. There can be no other source. It's not just the writer of Hebrews that says that Peter will say it in Acts 4.12. He will say, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven among which men must be saved. Paul will say in Ephesians 2.4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. But if that doesn't convince you, Jesus says it. John 14, 6. I, I, I am the way, the truth, and the light, and no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. He says in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life. What's eternal life, Jesus? Tell us. What's eternal life? How, how do we get this eternal life? This is eternal life that they know you, God the Father. And they know your son, Jesus Christ. There is no salvation apart from a Savior. And there is no eternal Savior other than Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is saying to them, and he's saying to us as Oh, your circumstances have changed. They're going to. You're going through trials. You're going to. You're suffering. I hate it, but you're going to. And they're constantly going to be changing. But he doesn't change. The way to salvation doesn't change. And so you keep holding on to him no matter what happens in your life circumstances. You keep clinging to him in faith. That is the point with that odd phrase. Again, warning bells should have gone off at the very end where he says he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. 
Say, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What's this stuff about obedience? Is it that I have to live a right standing before God for Him to accept me? Is that what He is aimed at? Is, is, is I have to be rightly living to be accepted? Well, no, that isn't possible. You can't do it. He did it. What does He mean by obey Him then? Again, we have to do some work think about Romans and I think about this magnum opus of, of theology where Paul is writing and he begins and he ends Romans with the exact same clause. And it's purposeful. He talks about the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. It's right that it begins the book and that it closes out the book because the Christian life begins with the obedience of faith. And the Christian life continues in the obedience of faith. It continues that way. Faith is obedience. As Paul will say in Romans 10.16, those who have not believed have not, quote, obeyed the gospel. Unbelief is a lack of obedience. As Jesus says in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The obedience of faith. Jesus is giving the great commission at the end of Mark. He said, whoever does not believe will be condemned. But those who believe, who obey him by believing. And now you've got to work out that salvation with fear and trembling. There should be all kinds of fruit. But is that belief? You believe. They know eternal salvation. Circumstances are going to change. Some of you are in the midst of high, high waters right now. Some of you are praying for this morning. That just feels like, oh, just, ah, I don't know how much more I can take. And it feels like your faith is just being swamped. And does he not care that I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm perishing. And he remains constant and true. You have to keep fixing your eyes on him. It was uh, this weekend with one of my close family members. We were talking and, and we were crying together. We were crying. We are talking about sin. And the pains of this life and the trials and the sins that we're wrestling with and that are affecting our lives and our home and our friends and our family. We're talking about how wonderful it will be on that day when we are in glory and there's no more trials and there's no longer sufferings and there's no longer pains and I no longer have to wrestle with my sin. And I no longer have to wrestle with the effects of your sin. It will all change. It changes. But he doesn't. 
And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's fixing a strong pole in the ground. And he's saying, keep yourself centered upon this. Keep going around this. Three quick applications. What he's saying is saying, keep looking to Christ. He's just setting Christ before them. Keep looking to Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Just keep clinging to Christ. Second, cry out to Christ. He is a faithful and merciful, sympathetic high priest. He knows the disappointments of not having your prayers answered as you desire. And yet he knows the benefits of having one come alongside of him and strengthen him. He loves to hear the cries of his people. So you fix your eyes upon him and you fix your voices to him. You keep crying out. Lastly, you continue in faith in Christ. You look to Christ, you cry out to Christ, you continue in faith in Christ. How can we turn anywhere else? It all changes. He doesn't. He is a faithful Savior and He is worthy of all of your trust. Our Father, we are thankful for such a great salvation this morning. Thankful, O oh Christ, the Son of the living God, that you willingly suffer for sinners such as us. Forgive us that too often the circumstances and trials and sufferings of this life Take a toll on our faith, though you know the testing of that faith. We pray that we would keep clinging to you even as you cling to us. Pray for every soul in this room this morning, O oh, Father, that there would not be one that hasn't looked to Christ and salvation today, the one source of salvation, eternal salvation. And that there is not one soul that leaves this room that already finds Christ to be the eternal source of their salvation. That hasn't looked afresh and anew in thanksgiving Christ as a source of their eternal salvation. Strengthen us, we pray. And may we present our bodies as a living sacrifice to you. For you are worthy. In Christ's name, amen.